Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, another uh, listener question episode. The reason I'm following up from the one before is I got a bunch of questions. I'm not trying to tell everybody to ask questions, but I got a flurry of questions after I asked for questions. So here's uh, six good ones, and uh, I'll, I'll address them quickly. But first, thanks, sponsors, Tops, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huck and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compsy.com and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. Some of these questions I give the attribution of who asked them, and some I just will make them more anonymous. It depends on uh, the situation. So let's see. I got a comment off YouTube. I, I post to YouTube about once a week. I, I just put the audio stuff up there, so there's not a lot of activity. But I have a surprising number of comments because I think that's a system and a format that uh, encourages a comment. So ASMR people, thank you for your actually more of a comment. I'm assuming it's a he commenting on the retail dilemma episode 473 saying that the one box or, or a limiting purchase system generally works. And he also commented, as I heard DJ Kasmerzak reference that the target incident where the guy pulled a gun was the exception. It is the exception, but one pistol or one handgun is enough to get uh, the national media's attention. So target is now shut down. And the ASMR people is just saying it's sad because he gave the counter argument that he's met a lot of nice collectors in line waiting to get some of these blasters and hangers. And so if there is a line, even socially distanced, and you've got a chance to kibitz with uh, who's in line, and I really believe that 99.9% of the collectors out there are pretty nice and not concealed handgun people necessarily, or at least even then. I don't want to make judgments about that, but if I was being shaken down, I wouldn't like that either, and I'd wonder what my options were, and I'd maybe be ready the next time. That guy was ready this time. Second question, and this was a little more of a question, and this was from ASMR People, which was actually a second separate question, about a serially numbered card that has more in the pop report than are in the numbering of the card. If it's a numbered card to 50 and the population of the uh, accumulation of pop reports happens to be more than 50, obviously people are cracking and resubmitting. And is there a way around that? The suggestion was maybe offering some kind of a discount <laughs> if you turn in your crack slab and label. I'm not sure that's going to work. That's an interesting idea if you offered them five bucks. I still don't think if you would know that a nine had been cracked and then submitted in order to try to get a 9.5 or 10, or a lot of the cracking and resubmitting is within the same ecosystem. And this uh, gentleman fingerprint idea probably might catch some of that. But even so, I, I don't think that's going to change. When that happens, there's information in that. It's hard for me to think that someone is cracking it out and then getting a lower grade. And so, if anything, the cracking and resubmitting, when you see a card that is getting up there, where there's a high degree of the population is already graded, and even, perhaps even more, that's an inflation factor. That's going to make it easier. There are many situations that I'm aware of that a card is cracked and resubmitted and slabbed, especially if it goes to another company, it gets the same exact grade. It's a nine PSA that's sent somewhere else or vice versa, and it's cracked before it's sent in in order not to bias. Because as I said, I think there's a negative 0.5 bias if one of the grading companies gets a slab for another card. So take it out of the slab. Now you've lost that. Yeah, I actually, I'm not so down on it as much as most people. It's a free world and it's being possible to police. And the grading companies don't want to discourage it because it's revenue positive. Okay, third question. 
This is from Matt Hamilton, and this was an interesting question. Wondering why so many of the high-end national treasures and flawless cards are graded with BGS rather than PSA, and why is that? I'm a fan of BGS. I wish I could say it's because BGS has a better or faster turnaround. Actually, I do not think that is the case, <laughs> because PSA, BGS, pretty much all of them. But just comparing those two, they're both having real difficulty with turnaround times. On the other hand, there'll be two other reasons why somebody would choose BGS over PSA. One is just the price to grade it. BGS, you're going to pay more if you want it back faster. PSA, you're going to pay more just on the value. So if it's a very high value, high end National Treasures card, then the amount that you would pay to grade it with PSA would be substantially more than what it would be for, for BGS. So the price to grade it, again, BGS, you're going to upcharge because you're probably going to want to do a faster service. But with PSA, you have no choice. They're going to, by the value of the car, they're going to charge you. And then lastly, there's a perception that BGS slabs handle the thicker cards better. I've heard that uh, before, and uh, that'd be another reason. So a lot of these high-profile cards have been BGS. I think that's, as I said, one of the reasons Nat Turner and the new leadership at PSA are not limiting the submissions during this hiatus. They still want to get these really good cards in. Question number four was from Russ Opdahl and was a comment about the fingerprinting and was clarifying. I think I was not clear on that and I don't want to be misleading, but uh, fingerprinting, I actually have had the situation of putting my fingerprint a card and I and not screening the surface of my cards very well. Some of my early submissions to BGS. So fingerprinting is not necessarily putting something on the card. It's the uniqueness uh, of the card according to the printing process. Every fingerprint looks the same until you magnify it to a great degree. The unique identification, you'd have to do that with a pattern recognition of a high-grade scanning or, or camera activity where you're saying these two things same. Like actually the fingerprints. They're scanning the fingerprint database to see if there's one like it. So thanks, Russ. I, I was uh, a little uh, loose with that. The problem, as you point out, is that once you have it in the system, you're going to see if it's in there. And if it's not, how close does it need to be? If somebody has wiped something or brush something, would that be a near match or would it be a non-match? So I, I, th I think we're going to continue to learn on this. And a lot of it's with the idea of the previous question of making sure that there's some understanding of what the quantity is of resubmissions and cracking. Okay, question five was anonymous, and I've gotten this more times, but it's, what should I grade? What should I grade? I'm going to interpret it in context of the new grading calculus of how long it takes to get things back, as well as how much more it costs now. I don't think you're going to like my answer for me as an analytical person and a math person is I just do the math and I see and I look at the probabilities and I figure if it gets this kind of grade, it's worth it at this price. The player has enduring value. I'm not going to worry about having it in for some period of time and then getting it back in the player's uh, all of a sudden cold. If I'm sure it's an eight, might be a nine, it's not going to be a 10. <laughs> so generally you get it down to between two grades. And if you think, I think it's a nine, but it might be a 10, for pretty sure it's not going to be a 10 if you can see some uh, noticeable defects. It's very rare. The graders look at a lot of cards. I'm not saying there couldn't be an occasional mistake, but they're looking for flaws. If you see it, I promise you with their equipment, they're going to see it. So what to grade? There have been too many individuals and entities and small companies that have popped up now that do pre-grading, that do bulk submitting, group submissions, 
I think, especially with these latest increases, the best way to figure out what to grade, Russ, is to take it to your local and just say, what do you think? Because it's just really hard to be objective. And if I were in a different situation, less knowledge, less experience, I absolutely would do that. On the other hand, I think anybody that can ought to be trying to improve their grading skill. I think it's an acquired skill. I don't think you're necessarily born with it. If you were to study cards and uh, take these tests when the grading companies do and just see how you do. And okay, but failing that, find somebody that you really trust that you could take your good cards to and say, because you, you can lose money on grading the wrong stuff. So check with a third party person. Last question. And this is uh, revisiting FOMO. And I, I was thinking about this is that FOMO is not a bad thing in some cases. So in what cases is FOMO not a bad thing that you, that you really are going to miss out? I don't know that the phrase has been coined, but when we have a mixed market now, that means things are going up, things are going down. So your FOMO, on certain things, it, 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 you, you might get a chance, it might come back around, even at, perhaps even at a lower price. So FOMO needs to be interpreted in light of what I call fast-forward FOMO or FOMO forever. That is, if you pass on this now, you, you're most likely never going to see this at any price. If you wait until later on a lot of these cards, you just don't know. It might go down and it might go up over five years over 10 years? And what happens if you wait five or 10 years to see if the card goes up or goes down? Worst case for you, if you passed on it, is maybe in 10 years, it's doubled in price. 10 years, if it's doubled in price, your salary may have doubled and your net worth may have doubled. So proportionately, you didn't miss out forever. You missed out for a while. Now, again, that bit me bad. I Wagner, Lajouet, Plank, all those cards I had a chance to get. And I did not consider FOMO. I thought I'll maybe get a chance to get that uh, more. Most of those times when I passed on it, I had uh, a lot less money than I have now. And it's too late. I'm not going to pay those prices. So I, in effect, did miss out. And because I did not follow the advice I'm saying right now is that if it's not going to be ever available or not going to be ever available at a reasonable price or at a price that you can justify to your family, then you better buy it now if, if you really want it. Now, the all bets are off thing is the fact that fractionals have put a situation here now where you can, you could FOMO, you could miss out on buying the 52 mantle. And then you could say, gosh, I really should have done that a long time ago. But now you could say, you know what? I'm not going to pay for the, the whole card, but I can own a piece of it. I can own a fractional and I can observe how it's uh, going up or down. I can have some kind of a pride of ownership that perhaps is appealing. I think it's not as good as having the whole card. The other thing I was going to say that I, I've not really said before is that when you're looking at FOMO forever, there's an aspect of uh, if you can finally afford something when you're 90 years of old of age, this, I don't want to be buying cards when I'm 90. If my life expectancy is 91, I, I'd rather enjoy it before I'm having such a cognitive decline or inability to really enjoy. It's like the people that wait uh, to travel. They're not going to do overseas travel while they're working. They're saving their money. And then they get in their 60s, their 70s, and then they get their 80s. Then, hey, let's go to Hawaii. You can't enjoy Hawaii in the same way when you're 80 as you can when you're 40 or 50 or 60 or even 70. So look ahead, fast forward, think about your FOMO, not in terms of right now, but in terms of ahead. And while you're doing that fast forwarding, again, if you pass on Shohei Otani, which people did for a while and, and maybe still are doing now, the FOMO bet is 
that he's not going to be the next Babe Ruth. It'd be interesting if you checked with Las Vegas and some of the bookmakers. I wonder if there's these proposition prop bets for and odds for some of these situations that somebody's going to do something in the future. But if you looked at those and you really interpreted what the odds meant, these are very unlikely things that somebody is going to be the best ever. And by FOMO, you're saying, I'm afraid that he might be, if you were in a gambling situation, the bookies would take those bets all day long. So six more questions. Thanks, sponsors. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, people that submit questions. Dr. James Beckett at gmail.com. I'll be back again tomorrow with another episode. The man-